It's episode 92 of the Presentable Podcast, and I'm your host, Jeff Dean. Today on the program is Sanango Akpem. He's a design director in New York and the author of the new book, Cross-Cultural Design. We're going to discuss how to check our assumptions and grow an awareness when we're designing across multiple cultures. Sanango, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, excellent. I'm, glad, I'm really glad you're here. Now, you're based in New York, aren't you? Yes, in Queens. That's oh, right. Great, great. So, uh, look, we, you know, as we're recording this, uh, we are, let's see, we're coming up on, a, I think, nearly half a year of living in lockdown of various sorts. Um, I'm wondering, how are you getting on practicing design in this new world these days? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, I mean, I think a lot of people's lives have been scrambled. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the concerns of design and interfaces and what the web can and can't do, I think pale in comparison to what has been going on outside our doors. Um, you know, on, in my neighborhood, we have a, a large hospital, Mount Sinai, um, you know, the sirens were just constant. There were unfortunately refrigerated, uh, trucks outside the hospital, yeah. um, that they used to, um, you know, to store dead bodies. So walking outside, you know, in the neighborhood, you know, once a day or whatever, getting some fresh air if you can. And then seeing that it kind of, you know, it puts the design stuff in perspective. Um, But having said that, you know, the tools that the web has been building over the past, you know, five, 10 years, uh, Skype, Zoom, and Google uh, Drive, and so on, I think have really come into play this time in a real way. Um, And, you know, servers didn't fall over. Right. And so there's been a lot of situations, I think, where we've been able to communicate and work remotely um, in a way that we wouldn't have been able to if this had happened, let's say, five, 10 years ago. Yeah, the sort of uh, maintaining productivity uh, in a way that didn't feel like such a huge adjustment. I mean, obviously, being home and alone all the time is a uh, is a challenge for so many people. But that but the ability to maintain our work and our work relationships, you know? Yeah, yeah, very much so. I know that there's, you know, people posted like they haven't physically touched another human being in, you know, 35, 40 days. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's rough. Um, and uh, for all our talk of, you know, delight in interfaces and, you know, customer satisfaction and all that, like at the end of the day, you know, especially as this is happening, um, you know, we do need to remember that it's it's just lonely human beings <laughs> all over the world. So, Yeah. Yeah, that's really putting that into perspective and really poignantly too as well. I agree. I agree. Um, uh, but you have been busy. You, uh, you've uh, finished up a book uh, that uh, I'd love to s- sort of dig into today. How, uh, how's that process been? Yeah, so the, the book itself, you know, was obviously a labor of love. Um, it took, you know, two and a half years or so to put together. But it's been an idea that I've been uh, speaking and writing about for some time. And in fact, in 2012, um, I think was the first time that I had spoken about uh, cross-cultural design to an audience in New York. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of the exact same ideas made their way into, uh, you know, the, the final form uh, of the, the book for a book apart. And so having written it and then getting ready to, you know, speak more about it, a book launch came in the end of February and then the sure. pandemic hit. Um, I think it really put a a crimp uh, in a lot of the plans that we had. You know, I I didn't do a book launch party, for example. And that's, 
you know, from my own personal perspective, it would have been nice to, to have all of my friends around and, you know, have a drink and eat a cake. But um, having <laughs> yeah. said that, you know, yeah. going back to our original point, like the web has allowed me to do things like this, to talk about the ideas. And, um, you know, people have been very, very receptive to the the topic of the book and the ideas. So, yeah, you know, it's it, uh, that's great. Um, it's been really interesting this past week. There's this so there's this conference called Mind the Product. It's like the biggest product conference every year. Uh, they have one in San Francisco. They've got one in uh, London uh, that I've been to the past four or five years. And they had it entirely online. Uh, and I was surprised at the like, you know, I, I kind of assumed like, oh, it's gonna be a conference online. Like I could just watch it on YouTube, you know, like right. what, what is that? But the, the, ah, they're using some technology platform that allowed for like little breakouts and lots of chat and people conversations. The flow was really well done. And, and I was like, you know, I would, I would give this maybe an 80% where I was thinking yeah. it'd be just like the 15% experience yeah. but like i felt like i connected with some people and and you know it wasn't at all the that in-person sort of thing but uh, i was surprised by that so i think you know uh well you know we've said this over and over again to the point where it's becoming sort of a cliche but the the world won't go back to what it was before there'll be this new normal and i'm starting to feel a couple of things that like you know what i bet we'll do a lot more of these and a lot less of getting on airplanes and and flying for 10 hours to go to a conference you know yeah um and uh, there's a series of books. There's um, I love science fiction um, for mm. anybody out there who also does. Yeah. And um, so Kim Stanley Robinson is a science fiction writer. Has done you know a bunch of really incredible works. And one of the series uh, was the the Mars series. So there's like Red Mars, um, oh, Green yeah. Mars, and Blue Mars. Essentially about the terraforming of the planet um, and the colonization of Mars, and you know the politics that went into it. And it's very much a how science meets politics meets uh, culture, uh, which, of course, I love. And, uh, you know, one of the things in there was the ways that people communicate, you know, with their loved ones back on Earth, even when they were traveling to Mars in the first place. You know, they put 100 astronauts because you need like some critical mass of people, put 100 astronauts in a tin can and send them across the void um, and go to Mars. And they're like, good luck. Um, you know, like the 18 minute lag on communications back to Mm. their loved ones. And so I feel like we've been seeing examples of what this looks like in popular culture and in writing for some time now. And humans are finally starting to experience, you know, what that means to be completely virtual. So um, yeah, it's, it's coming true <laughs> yeah. in a sad way. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. So I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about sort of your motivations for, uh, focusing your design work on cross-cultural design and things like that. I saw there was a great, I'll put a link to this in the show note. There's a great, uh, talk you gave at Google. Uh, and I was watching some of that where you kind of open up talking a little bit about your, your past and, and being, a third culture kid. I've had a couple other designers talk about that on the podcast. I wonder if you'd like to talk a little bit about that and, and how it brought you to kind of where you are today. Yeah. So for those people listening who don't know, uh, I am a third culture kid, which essentially means I am from three cultures. Um, the first being I am Nigerian. Uh, my father's a Nigerian. Uh, my mother was uh, American and she was a missionary um, and she, uh, you know, in, I think the, the early sixties moved to Nigeria. Um, she was originally from California. I went to school in Michigan and then moved to Nigeria to, to be a nurse. 
um, and met my dad and they, um, you know, got married, had three kids in Nigeria and raised me and my sisters there. And so, you know, my upbringing was one where I was Nigerian. I uh, was American. I carry an American passport. Uh, but then I was also this third culture, which is this kind of amalgam, this mix. Um, and, uh, you know, that came in the, the boarding school that I went to, which was an international school, my friends, many of whom were also biracial. Um, and so growing up, it was very normal for me to be in an environment, a situation where I was, you know, of many different places all at once, uh, where language could switch almost instantaneously, you know, in conversations, you know, where people would bring back, you know, food from their parents' home country, you know, back to our yep. home country, back to Nigeria. And it wasn't anything that, uh, you know, we thought was unusual. And so growing up in that way, you know, I think it was actually quite a shock for me the first time that I moved to the U.S. Um, and, you know, to live in a much more of a monocultural uh, society. And uh, I think over the years, you know, as my time, I, I lived in Japan for a number of years. And so that was yet another kind of like, you know, a cultural experience there where I'm a third cult culture kid in a fourth culture. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it gets weird, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, through those experiences and, uh, you know, through my upbringing, I think I've, as a designer, tried to focus on what that means, you know, in the, the world of creativity, what it means for interfaces, what it means for the web to speak to and to design for people who have that same, you know, sort of experience and that same outlook. Um, and, uh, you know, there's been, as I've been writing the book, quite a few very interesting things that I've, I've learned, not only about myself, but I think also about the, you know, the design community at large um, that's, um, you know, I think really helped to illuminate like what it means uh, to do cross-cultural design in a good way. Mm, yeah, I would love to sort of back up a little bit and and talk about what we really mean when we say cr cross-cultural design. So if I look back on my own career and the really, I would say, profoundly naive attempts at like uh, what we would call back then internationalization and localization, Right. Yeah. As like, you know, tick, tick, done. Right. What's next? And um, and honestly, like w when we thought about doing like designing for, quote unquote, other cultures, you know, it'd be something like leave room in the UI because this needs to be translated into German. And those words are really long. Right. Yeah. You know, yes. and like and that was the that was the sort of internationalization, which was like the software must respond to other languages. And yes. then there was this like this kind of this notion that was a little, I don't know, slipperier, uh, slipperier, harder to define, I'll say, which was this this notion of localization where like, oh, and you know what? You, maybe you should design it a little different for different, you know, for different cultures. So, you know, uh, like the interface isn't going to really work if the text is going from right to left instead of left to right. So, yeah. and you know what, like when we look at interfaces in Japan, they're really different and they, there's a different set of color aesthetic and, and what it means to be dense information or, or, or spaced out, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah. And that, and like, that's how far we got. Right. And this is even 10 years ago, I would say yes. that was still right. Um, and I think now it, what it sounds like you're talking about is much more like that shift when we started thinking about responsive design, when Ethan Marco first started to talk about like, no, 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 no. It's much more than you have a different version for a different thing. Right. It's a systematic, holistic way of approaching design. And that's where it feels like you're coming from. What do you think about like all that history? 
Yeah, obviously to be compared favorably um, to Ethan is, that's cool. Um, and uh, I, you know, I completely concur with what you're saying. And what I wanted to do as I was writing this was to, I think, directly attack the idea that it is those tactical changes that are the thing that we need to do. Yes, there are methods and ways to make sure that your, you know, your user interfaces are localized, but it goes so much deeper than that. You know, some of the things that uh, I point to in the book are not only looking at the, you know, the way that the interface operates, but also looking more fundamentally at the way that your, you know, content is structured, you know, that the questions that you ask yourself when you start a project uh, before any pen has hit paper, uh, before any, you know, the pixel has been moved around, what are the ways that you conceptualize who your audiences are and, uh, you know, how you define them. So I'll give you a quick example. Like uh, one of the things that I note uh, in, in the book is design industry's use of personas, uh, which everybody loves because they're these, you know, very you know, succinct uh, in mm-hmm. many ways, uh, you know, methods of describing our audiences. And so I have a persona. Her name is, you know, Patricia. Here's a picture of her in her house alone. And, um, you know, here's the things. You know, she's 85% tech savvy, whatever that means. Um, and, uh, she has some of her goals written down and so on. Right. But that is a very Western centric perspective on what a person is in their relationship to technology. And instead of doing those very uh, kind of like rote and memorized actions as a designer, maybe we need to step back and ask ourselves when we're designing for a multicultural audience, a cross-cultural audience, like what does a persona actually look like in the first place? Um, and so, you know, again, for example, there are in some countries, a significant percentage of people who share phones with other family members. Hmm. So what does a persona look like when I have to share my phone with my big sister? Yeah. Well, it's not that one. Um, but now <laughs> I need two pictures. So Patricia and her sister, but then all of the other pieces, like, where do I mark the tech savviness of two people? Um, so those are the types of like more fundamental um, you know, theoretical questions that I tried to get at, uh, you know, as I was writing and um, really to help people have like a framework for how they approach the work before they ever actually do the work. Yeah. Um, you know, if you get to the, the localization bit of your project and you haven't considered any of this, you're probably going to fail. And that's OK. I mean, you've wasted your client's money, but at least you learned something. So <laughs> I like that attitude. That's right. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Uh, let them fund your education. There you go. Sure, 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 sure. Here's uh, the stack. Yeah, exactly. That's great. That's great. Hey, let's take a little break uh, before we come back and talk about this some more uh, and hear from our friends at StackBit. Okay, so StackBit offers developers tools that enable inline content editing, live previews of content changes, sharing of real-time previews, and loads more on their Jamstack site. All of this supports the tools developers are already using and doesn't require code changes. That's why StackBit is a great way to Jamstack. That's a development architecture based on client-side JavaScript, reusable APIs, and pre-built markup. StackBit lets content editors make changes and preview how those changes look right on the page so they know when their changes will impact the page without needing to go through a whole publish and rebuild. Content editors can also share real-time previews of content changes, and StackBit works with all of your existing tools. That includes your static site generator, your headless CMS, or whatever deployment solutions you're using. Try StackBit's editing and collaboration features right now on their site builder. Uh, Go to stackbit.com 
click the Try Now button, and create a Jamstack site in just a couple of minutes built using modern tools and services like Gatsby, Sanity, Netlify, and GitHub. Once again, create your site today in just minutes at stackbit.com. Our thanks to Stackbit for their support of Presentable and all of Relay FM. All right, so here, here's a question I have. Before we sort of talk about a framework for, uh, for doing this cross-cultural design and some of the techniques and, and things like that, one of the things that I have always felt in my career uh, when approaching a project that was fully intended to be international, you know, I did work at Google and I did work at Adobe and these places that are, are not just going to be used by people of different cultures, but are intended for different markets, right? Like we're yeah. gonna, you know, and that is like, I would always stop and think, like, what right do I have? Like, you know, like, why should, does it make sense for me to try to, like, do all this work to figure out how the design should change? Or should I figure out a way to work with somebody who has that cultural sense natively, right? Like, in, like deep within them, and then figure out how to work together. And I, and I understand that's sort of probably a privilege of, a, of working for large organizations. But it felt to me like, that is such a better solution to just like, what if a designer that in that culture designs this and I can give them sort of, you know, an API or technical constraints and, and, and work together to do it that way. And so I, I always got stuck on that, you know? Yeah. There's a, you know, hubris, if that's the, the right pronunciation of the word, this idea in the design community that we are, because we've done something like this before, we are best placed to then do the work uh, again yeah, for others yeah. and it crops up over and over and over again in the you know the work that designers do and that's i think one of the things that i you know when i'm speaking about principles of cross-cultural design you know one of them is to work with experts um and that means necessarily swallowing that pride um getting rid of that ego and basically saying i am not the best person to mm-hmm. be able to do this work um i don't know enough about the interface needs or you know the train systems in uh in kenya to be able to build an interface for a company there who who needs this work right um and so working with experts is a way to basically say yeah here are the constraints of the project here are the things that i'm researching right you're going to do your research your ux research first um and i'd like to you know to have you help me um one of the things that i thought was really interesting uh, was a bit of research that I found um, and is in the book. And um, it was a group of researchers in uh, Northern Europe, and they were testing out the kind of cultural considerations that you needed um, you know, for, for interfaces. And the one in particular that they were testing was like a clip art application. And uh, they gave locals and then also uh, expats um, who were from a different culture, um, but you know, living in, in Northern Europe, uh, the same task, which was to create uh, an invitation uh, for their kid's birthday party. And they needed to use the clip art in order to, you know, to build the, the invite and send to their friends and coworkers and so on. And they deliberately included, you know, like images and things that were wrong for the culture. Mm. You know, so if it's in Denmark, like they, they added the, you know, the British flag and everything. Sure. Um, and as they were, uh, setting the, the um, experiment up, you know, the testing, they had uh, people from the culture who uh, were working with each other, right? So um, they speak the same language, they have the same culture, and then they they crossed it. So they would have a person from one culture who was uh, doing the uh, usability test with a person from another culture. Um, anyway, as they 
uh, you know, their, their research found, even though the people from the same culture may take a little bit more time, the quality of the test was much higher. And there was a lot of cultural kind of nuance, language, slang, and so on that happened as the test and as the, you know, the um, experiment was going on mm. that made it easier for the, the participant to complete the, the usability test. Um, and so, uh, you know, going back to, you know, the idea of just working with experts, like pay people on the ground who know what they're doing to work locally, um, you know, with your audience and you will get much better results than if you think that you can do it yourself um, or if you think that, uh, you know, by reading a few books, <laughs> you're going to be set up to do the work. So. <laughs> well, you could start with a book. but <laughs> yeah, I mean, reading is good. It is good. Yes. Uh, read, please. Um, but um, yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, we've done before is um, there was an interface that was being translated, um, you know, localized um, into Chinese. And, you know, we knew that we couldn't do that work. And so we simply put out a call on LinkedIn that said, we're looking for bilingual uh, UX researchers uh, to, to do some testing and work for us. Know anybody? And within a day, there was a list of like seven or eight people like, yeah, sure, I'll help. Boom, right there. Those are the people who you can help, uh, who can you you can use to do that the work for you. Interesting. So, so uh, sort of connecting with other, not just creative individuals, but maybe even whole creative communities that are more versed in that culture. That's right. That's right. I feel like the creative communities all seem to think that they're the only ones doing it. And this isn't always true. I'm generalizing here and I shouldn't, but, um, you know, back to the, the idea that designers, uh, you know, often think that they're the only ones in the world. There are a lot of people who are battling with the same thing. The way that uh, an interface has to act when, you know, you're filling information for uh, your passport, for example, is a problem that many people in many different countries and many different languages are all tackling. So if that's something that you need to do for a third culture, then maybe you should get in touch with those people first and they can help you um, rather than think that, uh, that you can do it for them. Yes. Interesting. Interesting. And so uh, how have you done that in the past? I'm curious, like, where do you reach out? Where do you look? Do you have examples of that? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, there's a number of places that you can go, starting with LinkedIn as a creative community, sure. uh, yeah. or I'm sorry, as a professional community. Um, the, you know, the reach is quite wide. And, um, you know, if you speak English as a first language, or that's your only language, you're going to have to use tools and communities that, that, you know, are in English. And I think that that's okay. There's millions of people worldwide who are bilingual or trilingual. Um, so you're not losing too much. Uh, but you can also go more into the, you know, the social side, Facebook and Twitter and so on uh, to find people who may be able to, to help or to find other creative communities. Um, and, you know, depending on what type of work that you're into and the, you know, the stuff that you do, there are also other very niche groups and communities online. You know, if you are a science fiction illustrator, for example, uh, you're probably not going to go on Dribbble. Uh, you're going to go on ArtStation. Mm. But many people don't know about ArtStation because that's not their world. Uh, so I think that there's a number of options available to us. We just kind of have to dig a little bit. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. So so sort of supplementing your team, if you can, uh, with people that have that expertise. That's a, that's a great one. You also talk about just as a designer, immersing yourself in, in the other culture and embracing that other culture. Yeah. So for me, you know, this immersion has happened 
across my life. Um, and, uh, you know, I've been immersed in one culture or another for pretty much my, you know, my entire life, right? right. It's, it's one here, one there, um, all Nigeria or all Western, you know, Midwestern American um, or all Japanese. Uh, but as designers, you know, when we, we have these projects in front of us, that type of immersion, I think, is a great way to, to just get started. Um, and so, you know, if I'm uh, going to be doing work uh, for a particular community or a language, um, especially if you live in a more urban, you know, area, finding the, you know, museums or cultural centers, events, uh, webinars and so on, uh, where, you know, that community is kind of out and about and they're doing their thing is a great way to start immersing yourself. You know, if you're doing something for a German market, like, you don't have to watch every single webinar about, you know, German interface design. You know, you can just go to like a, a cultural performance. Like that's okay. It's okay to see things as they're, they're happening and start to get a feel for it. Um, so, you know, if it's a, you know, an interface working with, um, you know, a native community, um, like, you know, going to a, a museum uh, isn't the only thing that you should do, but it's a start just to start immersing yourself in, you know, culture and, um, you know, ways of living and so on. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And and you do sort of, sort of start to pick up the subtle differences, right. Um, uh, if not the more dramatic ones, but I, 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 you know, for example, like I moved from lived my whole life in America and then moved, uh, a few years ago to the UK and living in, in London. I remember being struck by two things. One was the, the, frankly, so many similarities and I, and a lot of it I would attribute to, you know, things like Instagram culture, as, yeah. you know, like, Oh wow. Like everyone's wearing all the same clothes, you know, <laughs> as simple as that, but like, yeah. Oh, right. We're all looking at the same stuff all the time. I get that. All right. But then this, just the tiny subtleties that would show up like in interfaces, uh, in UK websites that I never noticed before because those sites weren't localized to me when I was in the U S yeah. but, but even something as simple as, Oh, in the UK, uh, when I fill out a form where I have to put in a title for myself, that's, that's a, always a required field in the UK. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. Oh, Hey, that, I mean, that's relevant to the culture, you know, like, yeah. um, and I, and, and then you'll pop it open and there'll be 20 things that you could choose from in the, in the pull down for title. Yeah. Um, and so I always enjoy picking a new one every time, but, uh, <laughs> uh but, it, yeah. but, it, you know, even that subtlety, I think it's something that you can by immersing yourself, you can start to pick up and, and start to get a little more fluent, p perhaps in a different culture that you are, even if you can't travel to the place, you know, even if you can find it locally. But I, yeah, I, th I think I, I'm getting what you're on there. Yeah. Yeah. And funnily enough, this is just an aside, but uh, when we were little, so Nigeria is a culture that's obsessed with uh, status and titles, mm -hmm. uh, funnily enough, you know, as a not only as a former British colony, it's just kind of the right, way that right. Nigerians are, but um, perhaps there's some, you know, some crossover there. Sure. And, uh, you know, as kids, we would often joke about, you know, people would come through with big titles or, you know, they would have long kind of honorary, um, you know, things listed before their names on invitations or, um, you know, in books or whatever. And so somebody could be, a, you know, a Reverend Al-Haji, which is, a complete contradiction. Um, you know, you can't be an ordained minister in the Christian church and then also be, um, you know, a practicing Muslim. But we would right. joke about that sort of thing because it uh, kind of illuminated the absurdity of these long titles. 
um, that uh, a lot of big men and big women would would use to identify themselves. So, yeah, but that's a, a sarcastic way to look at it. Well, sh- sure, sure. It's just it's also interesting sort of uh, generationally uh, what what was so important now seems so anachronistic. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. Uh, hey, let's take another quick break. Uh, and actually, here's a new I got a new uh, a new sponsor for the show, my old friends and former employee Adobe. So let's let's hear about that. So the uh, folks at the in the design group over at Adobe are doing a new podcast and it's called Wireframe. Uh, it is a podcast about how user experience design can help technology fit into our lives. And it's hosted by somebody who I've known for a long, long time, Koi Vin, who's the senior director of design at Adobe. Uh, and there's a new season. It's uh, season three. And they gave me a little early access so I could listen to kind of what's coming up. And it's just so good. The episode I listened to, the first episode of season three, it's about how the pandemic has changed our habits and our lives. The season kind of really leans into how design intersects with all of these changes. So, you know, they're talking about stuff like how user experience design helps people manage stress and sleeplessness or, or finding something good to watch uh, on streaming services. Like, you know, some of those issues around how designers are doing it. But the first episode is just is talking to a bunch of designers about how uh, lockdown has changed our lives. They talked to a bunch of people I knew. Erica Hall was on there, who's been on this show before, uh, and and people doing all kinds of of different work. Uh, they talk about uh, an AIGA survey uh, that they've done that shows that o- over half of the designers th- that are members of the AIGA have had a reduction in income in these last five months or six months. And that unemployment among designers is five times higher than the last time they did the survey before the pandemic. It's just really powerful stuff. And I think, you know, listening to it as a designer and kind of hearing what's happening to people in their, in their careers, with their families and their lives, uh, it's just go check it out. Just all you got to do is search for wireframe in your favorite podcast app, uh, like the one you're using right now. Uh, I obviously have a, uh, a link to it in the show notes check out uh, wireframe and thanks to them to adobe uh and the design group over there for their support of this show and all of relay fm all right so we've talked a little bit about connecting with other communities to help sort of supplement your your cultural uh, acumen um and also embracing other cultures uh you you also talk a lot about just the really sort of explicit questioning of your own assumptions Right. And almost like a little a little process around that, like documenting and checking and, and all that sort of stuff. And I think that gets to what you were mentioning earlier around checking our, our egos. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious about like, like, how can we sort of approach the work, uh, even on a very personal level? There's a, an essay by Dorothy Deasy uh, called Non-Assumptive Design. And that I, I refer to it regularly uh-huh. um, because although I think she's. You know, speaking of ordained ministers, I think that she is a practicing minister now or something like that. But anyway, um, you know, people write these things sometimes um, and they exist as these moments in time, these documents, and then they don't really ever do anything more, you know, in that vein and go on to do something else. But I'm glad that she she wrote it anyway. Um, and in the, the essay, she talks about ways to approach design in a, you know, a non-assumptive way, as the title would suggest. And basically, whenever you have a statement in your kickoff meeting or when you're working with your client or you're putting your docs together or whatever. And somebody says, 
we know that X or people do Y right there, write it down. It's an assumption. And you need to essentially disprove that in your head. You need to fight against those assumptions. And you probably do it to yourself and you don't vocalize it. Oh, I, I know that this, this interface will work because blah, blah, blah. Boom. Assumption right there. Right. And instead of going with those statements, be open about that as a, a bias, as an assumption. Write those things down and then essentially convert them into questions. Um, so, you know, if the statement is, uh, you know, we know that our audiences are mostly on feature phones. Well, the statement would be, uh, that that's the assumptive statement, but then the question would be, um, you know, what devices do our audiences use? And now all of a sudden you've opened it up into a research question and you need to follow that thread as far as it's going to go and figure out what the, you know, what the answers are. And it's probably a lot more vague and, uh, you know, and a lot more gray areas than you would expect. Um, and so that's, I think, a, a practical way to start fighting against, uh, you know, the assumptions that creep in as designers. Um, there are many other more fundamental ones around gender, around race and so on that, uh, you know, I think is a topic for a different time. But uh, when it comes to some of those design assumptions specifically, I think that's one way that you can go about it. Mm, interesting. You know, what it brings to mind is just the profound level of trust you need inside of a team as you're doing this work to be able to call out assumptions, right? Because it could feel so accusatory if you're just saying like, wait, 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 I, I get what you're saying, but aren't we assuming that that means this, you know? Um, I'm sure you've, you must have experienced that level of like, as you're working with a team and trying to do the cross-cultural design, like, it, I, I don't know, it feels like you could get into a space where like, wait a minute, are you calling me a racist? You know, that kind of, right? And yes, the, the team trust is, I think, essential for any sort of design work. Um, and, you know, this in particular, that's not always going to be the case. Um, and I think we, we need to be honest that, we very much are hired guns. Um, you know, we're paid operatives in the majority of the work that we do as designers, even if it's in-house, like you're getting paid to, you know, perform certain business critical tasks. And, uh, you know, it's not art. Um, you're not kind of making stuff um, as the, the mind sees fit. Um, and so there are going to be times when you need to follow the lead of the person who's writing the checks. That's okay. There are, I think, other ways that you can approach cross-cultural design if it's going to be too difficult or there's not enough trust on your team or, you know, the, the timeline is too small. I think that there's probably other ways that you can approach the work that's going to help mitigate some of that. Um, I would probably point to, you know, more of the tactical questions like, you know, making sure that interfaces themselves are uh, flexible for, you know, character numbers, like you can use some of those types of tools and that type of thinking to dig in a little bit more to uh -huh. some of the cultural questions. You know, if it's a question about, uh, you know, the assumption about feature phones, like maybe that's not an assumption that you can speak openly about, but what you can do, um, is find ways to reduce the overall page size, you know, have a, um, uh, you know, kind of a, a size limit for files um, that you're going to target. And you kind of like address that assumption without speaking it explicitly. Um, so you could do that if there's not that much trust on your team. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Or uh, as well as just modeling it yourself, I think, you know, that, sure. that sort of like, I'm going to document my thinking 
and stuff like that. You know, this is interesting too uh, because t- talk a little bit about doing these checks as early as possible and getting them out as early as possible. Right. Like the, yeah. the, like do your documentation of your, of your own assumptions, but then check it right away. Like check it with your team, check it uh, if you can with the potential users and stuff like that. It's interesting. You know, er- earlier I mentioned the mind, the product conference and I saw this great presentation from Matt LeMay and he was talking about, he's got this, this sort of, uh, this thesis, this movement he's trying to create around, uh, one page, one hour. And, yeah. right i was Try- just thinking about that that's funny i i knew you were going there oh yes. yeah no this is great. <laughs> I, and, and it was really good because like it, it it is an attempt to break down the egos of designers and our and our such strong desire to polish 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 before we show anything and he's like nope you get one page you get to work on it for one hour and then you have to share it with everybody else you know that kind of thing and yeah. i don't know just making the connection there between like uh let's get this stuff out and open and and visible and 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 shine some light on it at just as early as we possibly can. Yeah. So there's the the exercise that you can do uh, when you're with clients um, or you know obviously an internal team as well. Maybe you have stakeholders who aren't uh, necessarily designing all day. Let's say that you know the the task is to just design a homepage. That's dumb, but okay. And uh, you get a, a big piece of paper divided into six quadrants. And you essentially say, okay, I'd like you to draw six different possible homepage options. Mm. And, uh, you know, everybody does the first two or three pretty quickly. And then they start to slow down. I'm like, Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> do like, are there other options besides the, the, you know, the full page, you know, image hero. And that's the spot, like that tension right there. Uh, I, I pointed out because we still, as designers, you know, this idea that I'm, I'm going to do, uh, you know, a page in an hour, um, I'm going to work on something and then I'll show my work, like maybe an even more radical intervention is to essentially have everybody do that um, as quickly as possible, you know, and then you can start to see and synthesize those ideas together collaboratively. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, for more like high touch activities, I think that it's definitely a good idea to, you know, work on it yourself, like think about the ideas yourself and then um, and start to talk it through after an hour. I think that's great. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. Like one of my favorite ways I, uh, of working with small teams is to have sort of representatives in the room from all the disciplines that are going to be involved in producing something and they, even to the extent of beyond just, you know, engineering and design and editorial or, you know, whatever, but also sales or even legal and and seeing the drawings that come out from that, right? Um, yeah. and, and making that not like, ooh, we're all, this is, ooh, it's very creative. We're doing a design sprint. But no, this is how a meeting works at this place, yeah. right? Like, it's not yeah. like we all talk and we look at the slides, we click through the PowerPoint. But in fact, like, oh, that's a good idea. Let's let's sketch that out a sec. Ooh, that's another one. Like, let's sketch that out, you know? Um, yeah. It, it's a very different way of running a business, yeah. I think. And I think an important point to make as well is that, um, you know, what we're talking about is a Western way of approaching the design process. Um, I think, mm. you know, it, we we have a certain you know, kind of like egalitarianism or, you know, everybody's equal, like it's okay to get the salespeople in the room as well. Other cultures are not going to be as friendly to this idea or as forgiving. Um, you know, especially in cultures where there's much more of a hierarchy or uh, a distance between the, you know, the plebs um, and everybody else. <laughs> yep. 
having you know the director of sales in the room while three junior designers are supposed to be sketching something, you know what's going to happen? Well, the director of sales is going to tell them what to do, and they're going to do it. Uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, we need to make sure that you know as we suggest these things, we also find ways to you know, to make it accessible for designers who don't have, you know, the same level of kind of like Western, we're all equalness. Um, essentially, if you don't call your boss by their first name, <laughs> stuff oh, like that's not going to wow. work, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, I hadn't even considered that. That's a really, really good point. The, the How the design process itself uh, needs to be cross-cultural. Hmm. All sort of loops back on itself that way. That's fascinating. That's fascinating. Yeah. And one of the things that I learned when I was teaching, um, you know, I taught English in, in Japan for a number of years, and I've told this story before, but we had a, a student, um, his name was the, his name was not the taxi dispatcher, but that's what he called, we called him because that's what his job was. Um, and the taxi dispatcher was very, very, very fluent in English, very conversational and liked to talk about difficult stuff. You know, we, it's not often that, uh, you know, a Japanese person will, you know, like to speak to you about post-war uh, aggression during the Cold War, mm. um, you know, in a second language, right? It's not often that they will want to talk to you about uh, sex education in, in Japanese public schools. These things are difficult even, you know, for English speakers to speak with each other about. So you can imagine, you know, for others, it was a little bit hard. But um, he would come into the school and we would have this room called Voice it's essentially an open room with, uh, you know, sofas all around the walls. You just kind of go in and you can talk about anything you want. So he would come in and just absolutely dominate. You know, this guy like is using big words and uh, difficult topics, asking a lot of questions. And so you have these lowly students who are like literally just learning how to order a hamburger or to say hi. And they're coming in to practice their language. They can't even get a word in. They don't know what's happening. It's so disheartening. Um, and so one of the ways that we you know, tried to to combat that was, you know, first of all, he was an adult enough that we could speak to him and be like, hey, you know, you do have people coming in here who are more junior in their language ability, like, just be conscious of that. Like, and so he knew and he would try and ask them questions. Um, But the other thing that we would do is to make him another teacher. Um, And so give him an explicit role where he was to help educate in those, you know, those spaces. And so I bring that up just to say, if you do have, uh, you know, a situation where there's a large power differential or you're trying to do one of these design sprints and you've got a lot of, um, you know, hippos, the the highly paid people in the room, finding ways to essentially give them roles that accentuate their power, but put them in this like, you know, I don't have to lord it over people role. Um, You know, maybe they are the one who synthesizes all the ideas after they've been generated. Or maybe they're the one who takes notes, so they're the keeper of knowledge, quote unquote. Like, there's a lot of ways that you can, you know, do these things to kind of like shift the power dynamic if, if that's something that you're worried about. Interesting, interesting. Sort of Jedi uh, facilitation, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah, something like that. <laughs> that's great. That's great. Like, the book is called Cross Cultural Design. It's from our friends at A Book Apart. Uh, where can we find out more? I'll, obviously, I'll put a link in the show notes to the to the book. And I've noticed that you can download a sample chapter, which everybody should do, and take a take a look. Uh, where else can we send people? Um, yes, yeah, Sonongo.net is my uh, personal website. So, you know, a lot of my own design work is going to be on there. I'm pretty active now, again, on Twitter. 
be that as it may. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of bad puns, uh, but I welcome everybody to, to join along in the pain. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously, yeah, you can email me, um, you know, emails uh, on my site. Uh, but uh, just look forward to having everybody read the book. You know, please do pick up a copy at a book apart and, um, you know, let me know what you think. Um, I think that this is a uh, it's timely, uh, definitely for me personally, but I hope for the design community as well. Oh, totally agree. Totally agree. Sinango, thanks so much for being on the show. This was fantastic. All right. Thank you so much. And that's another episode of Presentable. Hey, got any questions? You can email us at hello at presentable.fm or get in touch via Twitter by following Presentable FM. We hope you've really enjoyed the show. And if you do, could you take a moment and give us a rating on iTunes? It really helps and we'd really appreciate it. Thanks for listening. And until next time, I'm Jeffrey Dean and this was Presentable.